All right. Good morning, everybody. We, um, how many of you are familiar with the term seeker-sensitive? It's an old-school church term. If you grew up in the, in the church or you were in church life in the 80s, 90s, and early 2000s, uh, there was a lot of discussion about this term, seeker-sensitivity, and there was all kinds of debate about it, too, because the question was, like, should you be seeker-sensitive or not? And if you should be, how much seeker-sensitivity is okay before it goes wrong? And so sort of like seeker sensitivity was the idea that you may have non-Christians or people just exploring Christianity coming to your church, and you want to create as a comfortable environment as possible for them to hear the gospel or hear the, the, the sermon for the day. Now, I'm not here to debate like exactly where seeker, like, like what's the proper understanding of seeker sensitivity, because it's, it's not like it's on or off. There's diff- different levels. You know, some churches could be like, all are welcome, but there's a sign that says, like, no visitors allowed. They just, like, they don't like seekers. They don't want anybody. And then there's some churches who are so focused on seeker sensitivity, it was like, you wonder if, do, are you ever going to, like, tell people that they've done something wrong, that they're sinners or something? So all kinds of debate about what's right, what's wrong, how sensitive should you be, how sensitive should you not be. All I'm going to say is that today is going to be the least seeker sensitive message <laughs> I could pros- possibly give. Uh, so we'll save the debates, and we'll just get into this. We're in a series in the book of First Peter. If you haven't been here, you're just joining us briefly. First Peter is a letter written by a leader in the early church, one of the first followers of Jesus named Peter, who was an apostle of Jesus, who is writing to persecuted and marginalized Christians in a region which is now modern-day Turkey. And so he's writing to them as a leader in the early church, trying to encourage them, strengthen them, teach them how they should live as sojourners and exiles. In other words, how they should live as people whose ultimate home is not here. Their ultimate home is with God and his kingdom. So here on earth, you might face troubles and persecution, and indeed, they were. Let's jump right in. First Peter chapter 2, verse 4. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So images here, and you want to picture them. Whenever the Bible's talking in images, which it does often, it's an image-rich document, you want to kind of picture it in your head. So Peter is describing Jesus as a stone, a living stone, and that's a weird image, right? A living and a live stone that is rejected. Rejected by men, rejected by humanity, but accepted and found precious before God the Father. Now think about this. Why would this be incredibly important and encouraging to the people whom he's writing to? The Christians are facing persecution. Economic marginalization, some of it will turn into physical persecution. So they are currently being rejected by humanity. And so Peter's trying to create a parallel to encourage them. Christians are being persecuted and marginalized because of Jesus. But you will ultimately be accepted by God. Jesus, the Son, was rejected by humanity but found acceptable and precious before God the Father. So in the same sense, Jesus is rejected, but found approved. You too, as you face rejection, will also be ultimately found approved of. And then in verse 5, it goes on, you are like living stones being built up into a spiritual house. So now you got like the one major stone, which is Jesus. And then you, if you're a Christian, you're like 
little stones, uh, and you're being built up. Every one of you has a place and a purpose, and you're being brought together to build up a spiritual house. Now, house most likely just isn't a normal house. When you talk about a house or specifically the house in the Bible, oftentimes you're talking about the temple, the place where God's spirit uniquely manifests itself. So there's this concept in the Bible, it's kind of paradoxical and hard for us to understand, but one half of the paradox we we hear a lot of, and you might be familiar with it. If you're a Christian, your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit, which means you as an individual, now in some similar sense to the Old Testament temple, you uniquely have the Spirit of God living inside of you. That's kind of the individualized component of it. You are the temple of the Holy Spirit. But the Bible also talks about, and in this case, this is what's apparent, the church as a whole, all of you individuals making up the temple of the living God. So there's two truths. Both your body and the church as a whole, both individually and corporately, you make up a temple of the living God. American culture usually emphasizes the individual component because we're a hyper-individualized culture. But Peter wants you to understand, no, no, you all are playing your part, uniquely building up this spiritual house. He goes on, for it stands in Scripture, and then he quotes the Old Testament. And if you've been here with us, we've been talking about hyperlinking and cross-referencing a lot. Peter's doing this again and again. A quote, behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Question, Are the believers that he's writing to being put to shame? It's a little bit of a trick question. Trying to get you to disagree with the Bible right now. They're being put to shame. Many of them are being kicked out of their homes, rejected by family. In the Eastern culture, to be rejected by family is is very shameful. So, So how does the New Testament, how does Peter talk about Christians not facing shame when they currently are facing scorn and shame? The Bible likes to talk about ultimate things, or what we'll call end things. There's a theological word called eschatology. It means the study of the end or study of the end times. But when modern-day Christians talk about study the end times, we we, we start like, kind of start getting weird sometimes. We start trying to like break down like signs and patterns and look at what color the moon is. And there's a time and a place for kind of what we'd call that type of eschatology. But for the New Testament Christians, eschatology, study of the end times, was primarily focused on when is Jesus coming back to rid us of evil, to end our suffering. So they talked about ultimate things. God is ultimately going to reconcile heaven and earth. God is ultimately going to restore his original plan. So because of that, that which is ultimate trumps the temporary. Yes, you are facing scorn and shame in the present, but you need to understand that's temporary, that's fading and fleeting, and ultimately, if you're in in Christ, there is no shame, there is no condemnation. You will be exalted, you will be lifted up. So the eternal or the end or the ultimate thing trumps that which is temporary and present, fading and fleeting. Keep your eyes on the end, says Peter. He goes on with more Old Testament quotes, so the honor is for you who believe, but for those so the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. 
They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. All right. The image again is brought back of a stone. The stone is Jesus, and the builders have rejected it. They saw Jesus as unfit to build the house. Humanity has inspected Jesus and said, we will not build upon this. He is rejected. And then he says with another Old Testament quote, Jesus, this stone that was prophetically spoken about in the Old Testament, is a stone of stumbling and a rock of an offense. And this gets us to where we're trying to get to today. The word for offense here in Greek is scandalon. And offense is a great translation, but its, its roots, the origins of the term, have to do with like a rock that you, that you trip over. So you ever been, it's like, like you're, rocking, you're walking and there's a big rock and you like trip on it, you stub your toe, you're angry, you curse at the rock as if it was a living human being, like it's his fault. You're angry. Jesus, the person and work of Jesus, the gospel message is like that. It's an offense, it's a scandal on, it's a scandal, it's scandalous. You don't want to just believe it right away. You know, we sing songs, and, and they're well, into, I mean, they're, they're right, and if you just have a proper understanding, like, we're running to the arms of God, which Christians do all the time, but you need to understand that before you ever ran to the arms of God, you tripped, you fell, you stumbled. All who come must stumble, because the message of the gospel is offensive. It's an offense. It's a scandal on. And we're going to circle back to this in a moment and tie these pieces together. But just the last last verse of our section of 1 Peter, and then we're going to go some other places. But you who have trusted in this stumbling block, this scandal on, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. So again, Peter's writing to people who are persecuted for the faith. So this is his, his encouragement to them. Now, if you're honest with yourself as a modern reader, like these words aren't very like encouraging. Like if you were having a bad day, you know, like, and your husband comes home and you're having a bad day. Hey, hon, you're, cho- you're part of a chosen race. Rosen- royal priesthood, a holy nation. Cheer up. It's like it doesn't, it doesn't work. But for Peter as a first century Jew, these, are, these images are loaded with significance. They're loaded with meaning. So first off, he says to New Testament Christians, you're a chosen race. Now, in the Old Testament, who were the chosen people of God? Israel. And throughout history... We have people in cultures, ethnicities, and nations who like to believe they are the chosen race or the chosen people. Now, historically, what happens when a nation or a culture or empire, per se, thinks that they are the chosen ones, they are the best, they are superior ones? It doesn't go well. It ends with bloodshed. So what, what, is, what does Peter and the early church mean by you're a chosen race? Well, it's interesting because the early church is a chosen race that does not see race. So the family of God, this new race, this new family, is composed of people that are neither Jew or Gentile. Male, female, slave, or free is how the early church would say it. So it's, it's like a race of people that 
don't see the racial lines. It's not to say those racial lines don't exist, like ethnicities matter, your history, your background, but when it comes to the people of God, it is, it is a race that is not defined by race. The family of God is not divided by socioeconomic status, not de- divided by ethnic lines. You're in Christ, whether Jew, Gentile, male, female, slave, free. Then there's this image of you're a royal priesthood. Now question, in the Old Testament, how would you become a priest? What makes you a priest? You become a priest. It's your lineage, right? There's Israel, and then there's 12 tribes, and then if you belong to a certain tribe, Levites, that's where the priesthood comes from. If you were a king, how would you become king? Like your dad was king, or some type of blood, blood connection. David dies, who gets to be king? Solomon. Ooh, I should do Bible trivia right now and see how, and, and, and Solomon dies, and who gets to be king? And whoever goes down the farthest? So it was genetics, it was lineage. So in the Old Testament, there's also almost this like proto version of a separation of powers. Like you couldn't have the high priest and the king be the same person. Like the lineage wouldn't allow it. But what is Peter doing? He's blending the imagery. You're a New Testament Christian. You're a, a part of the priesthood of God, but you're also royalty. It was impossible. The, the work of Christ is somehow transcending the categories of old. And then you're a holy nation. Yes, you're an American citizen, but your citizenship is first and foremost to the kingdom of God. All other citizenships come underneath that. And then these powerful words to describe Christians who are suffering. A people for his own possession that you might proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. All right, we went extremely fast through this section of 1 Peter. There's a reason why. In this section of 1 Peter, there's several themes and elements that appear somewhere else in the Bible. And they appear somewhere else in the Bible relating to Peter. On the day of Pentecost, in Acts chapter 2, what we would call the first Christian sermon is given. And it's given by Peter. And in the first Christian sermon that's ever given, all the themes and elements that Peter brings up are right here in the book of 1 Peter, and particularly what we're reading today. This idea of Jesus being rejected by humanity, but being found acceptable before God. And therefore, you need to put your faith in him to not face the shame. And so what I'd like to do is look briefly at the first Christian sermon ever given. It's by Peter. Acts chapter 2. And you're going to see all these similarities. But before we do that, I have to set the scene. What's the context? Because the first Christian sermon happens on the day of Pentecost, and that's significant. On the day of Pentecost, it's a Jewish festival. And so people from all across the Roman Empire would be gathering to celebrate there. Now, even though they're Jewish people, they've been scattered across the Roman Empire. Most of them have lost their Hebrew. Many of them have lost Aramaic, which many Jews spoke after Hebrew. And they're just now speaking the language of their culture, wherever they came from. 
So if you're coming from too much journey away and the people speak a different language there, your family's been there for three generations, you're not a Hebrew expert anymore. In fact, you don't even know Hebrew. You speak the language of the area. And so there's people coming from all around the Roman Empire to Jerusalem to celebrate Pentecost. This is important. More on that later. Secondly, this may not be historically true, but we know that pretty much everyone in the first century believed it to be historically true. This is brought up in a book called the Book of Jubilees. It's not in the Bible, but it gives you an idea of what Jewish thought was in the first century. Most Jewish people in the first century believed that in addition to this day being the day of Pentecost, that Pentecost is the day that Moses came down from Mount Sinai with the law to deliver to Israel. In other words, Pentecost also commemorates the day that God established the old covenant when Moses came down the mountain and gave the law to Israel. Now, how long did it take for Israel to uh, not obey the law? It wasn't very long. Like, if you know the story, you know the Old Testament, Israel is like, all of Israel said, we will obey every word and then give it some time and, you know, they're worshiping idols, okay? That's important. But this is the day Moses brought down the law, the covenant, to Israel. That's what people think. So what happens prior to Peter giving this first sermon? A miracle. The first followers of Jesus are praying and they're waiting for the Spirit of God to show up. And all of a sudden, it says the Spirit comes down, and like a fire, the people begin to speak in something called tongues. Now, tongues is a whole other thing that there's all kinds of debate about, and people want to talk about right use of tongue, bad use of tongues, what is tongues, what is tongues not. And that's a great discussion to have, but that's distracting for today. I want to tell you what tongues is in Acts chapter 2, because it's important. In Acts chapter 2, tongues is simply this. The first Christians begin to speak in the language of the people who have traveled all across the Roman Empire, and those people are hearing the message of Jesus in a language that they can understand. So an example would be of it is like, if you, like let's say you have business relation, uh, partners in Japan, and sometimes you go to Japan, and sometimes your business partners from Japan come here. One of your business partners is with you, staying for the week, you're having a good time, he only speaks Japanese, and you're like, hey, it's Sunday, we go to church. And he tells you, well, I only speak Japanese, I'm not going to understand anything. He goes, I don't really understand anything that guy says anyway, but the songs at the beginning are pretty cool, so just, just come, and then you kind of suffer through it. The dude comes, and all of a sudden I'm preaching, and then I, without any knowledge of Japanese, I start speaking Japanese, and I'm telling the man the gospel message in, in a way that he can understand. It's a miracle. The gospel's being preached to that. That's what's happening in Acts chapter 2. People are hearing the message preached in tongues. Okay, now, a couple things that are probably going on. The person who wrote the book of Acts is a guy named Luke, and Luke wants us to see a couple things. First, he might be hinting to us that this is the reversal of an old story in Hebrew scriptures. If you remember, there's a story called the Tower of Babel, and in the Tower of Babel story, you have humanity wanting to be like God, and they build a tower to ascend to take their place among God, the gods. And what God does is he actually pushes them down and confuses their languages. 
So Babel, you have man wanting to be like God, God pushing down and confusing the languages. In this story, you have the early church waiting for God to come down through his spirit, and when God does come down, rather than bringing confusion and chaos through more languages, he unifies everyone so that they can all understand each other. So it's sort of like this reversal of the Tower of Babel story. In addition, it's almost as if Luke wants us to see something. It's as if he wants us to see where Moses and the law had failed to do what it was intended to do, God, through his spirit and the new covenant, will accomplish what it intended to do. And, and what I mean by that is the law, I'm not saying that Moses thought the law was going to make every single in, individual Israelite obey all of the time that they could be saved. But the law in the Old Testament was given so that Israel could be holy. And holy to do What? to be a light to the Gentiles, so that all people would know the living God. That didn't happen, but now God, through his spirit, is going to do what? He's going to reach the nations. And you see that almost symbolically represented at Pentecost, all these different languages hearing the gospel in their language. Now, that's happening. Miracles are happening. Peter's got attention now. Like, if you were there and this is happening, going, what's going on? And then Peter, like the leader, stands up and is like, I'm about to preach a sermon. You're probably going to listen. And even if you didn't know what was going on, and you thought these people are just weird and kooky, you're probably still listening. And Acts gives us a hint, because a lot of people don't know what's going on. They're just going like, dude, these dudes are drunk. Like, everyone's just drunk right now. It's the early morning, but everyone's speaking gibberish. They just kept partying all night, because Pentecost, they're drunk. They're drunk. Either way, Peter has the attention. And he gets up and delivers this message. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst. And you yourselves know this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosening the pains of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Okay. We read that fast, but there's actually like this massive theological paradox right in the center of it. Like, you you lose your mind thinking about it. So we're going to think about it. Verse 23. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. So whose plan was it that Christ would be handed over to be crucified? God's. Definite plan. So it's not like, okay, God created, then Adam and Eve sinned, and then it's like, oh man, I'm God, what am I going to do? Adam and Eve sinned. Well, okay, I'm going to send Moses to give them the law. Oh no, they don't listen to the law. Okay, now I've got to send some prophets. I'm out of options i got to send God the Son, the second person in the Trinity, to go down there. It wasn't like that. The definite plan and foreknowledge of God. Before space-time existed for all eternity in the foreknowledge of God, this was the plan. Jesus was not option two. He was always option one. So whose plan was it? God's. Right after that? Oh, yeah, but you, you crucified him. It was at the hands of lawless men that got Jesus killed. So whose plan was it? It was like the the Pharisees who plotted. Oh yeah, human beings are responsible for the crucifixion of Jesus. Now this is where 
you can lose your mind. Because, you know, especially if you ever went to, how raise your hand if you went to Bible college? Like there's something that happens to 19 and 20 year olds at Bible college. They want to debate endlessly how much sovereignty is involved in this equation versus how much freedom is involved in this equation. Those are good debates to have. I'm a theology geek. I'm a theology nerd. I went through the phase. It's good. But what you need to know, the vast majority of time in scriptures, when the gospel is preached, it's just like this. Oh, whose plan was it? God, in his infinite foreknowledge, he sovereignly decreed before the foundations of the world, Christ would be handed over to be crucified. But you're still morally responsible. And so those are good discussions to have. I'm not saying any otherwise. But for Peter, he just throws out that theological, theological paradox and lets that tension sit. He lets it sit. Then he goes on to say, in verse 24, God raised him up, loosening the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. In Greek, this is a, a term relating to childbirth. So it's, um, there's an image again. It's like a woman who is about to, to deliver her baby. The body cannot hold back the baby from being born. Like the whole body is going to push it out. And for women who, who have had children, you, like you know, it's crazy. Your body does things that like it could not do any other. Like you go into Incredible Hulk and it's like there's muscles constricting, air, like super strength. And the baby cannot stay. It has to come. New life has to occur. In the same way, death could not contain Jesus. New birth, new creation would occur. The, the child had to come out. Jesus is called the firstborn from the dead. Has to come out. God raised him up, loosening the pains of death because it was not possible for death to hold him. Next, Peter and you could read this for yourself in Acts chapter 2, is going to use three Old Testament scriptures to show how the Old Testament was prophesying and pointing to Jesus. And he concludes the sermon after he's kind of shown the audience that Jesus was testified in the scriptures. He concludes it with this. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him, Jesus, both Lord and Christ. He says, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now, this is important. He says, God has made Jesus both Lord and Christ. And we can miss the language here. We cannot even think about it because we say things like the Lord Jesus Christ, and we just mean Jesus, right? You say, oh, we come to you, Lord Jesus Christ. And we're not actually thinking, what does Lord mean? What does Jesus mean? What does Christ mean? But Peter, at the climax of his sermon, says, no, understand this. Jesus is both Lord and Christ. So let's break down what that means. Christ, Greek term Christos, it comes from the Hebrew Mashiach, Messiah, the anointed one, the chosen one. In other words, Peter wants his audience to know that this is the one whom the Old Testament has been pointing to all along. He is the anointed one. He is the Messiah. He's God's chosen. This is it. This is what we've been waiting for. Then the word Lord in Greek is kurios, and kurios has kind of two meanings, two sides of the same coin. One is a Greco-Roman meaning, and the other one's a Jewish meaning. We'll go with the Greco-Roman meaning first, because it's a little bit easier to, to follow. Kurios, Lord. In the, in the first century Roman world, there was someone who was 
known as the kurios, the one who is most oftenly referred to as kurios, and that's Caesar, the head of the Roman Empire. He is kurios. He used titles for himself like kurios, kurios, king of kings, lord of lords. And in fact, later in the book of Acts, the early Christians will be accused of treason for proclaiming that there is another kurios other than Caesar. It's a treasonous type of thing. So they're saying, they're saying, make no mistake about it, Caesar may sit on the throne of the Roman Empire, but Jesus is sitting on the throne of thrones. He's the king of kings and lord of lords. He is the highest authority. Then the Jewish context, and this, is, this one's a little weird. Okay. Most people at the time of Jesus aren't reading, who are followers of the Old Testament, are not reading the Old Testament in the original Hebrew. The, the, the Greek language has kind of become the universal language of the Roman Empire for many. And even if you kept up on your Hebrew and you're trying to start, most likely you're changing to use Aramaic. So Greek is the language of, of, of the empire. And so many people were reading a specific translation of the Hebrew scriptures. The Hebrew scriptures were translated into Greek and that translation is called the Septuagint. So what most people are reading at this time are, is not the original Hebrew scriptures, but they're more familiar with the Septuagint, the Greek translation. Another way of thinking about it is, if you're in the English-speaking world 60 years ago, what translation are you reading? King James. There's no ESV, no NIV, no NASB. You maybe, if you're lucky, got a picture Bible. But it was KJV, King James, or nothing. Some of you are so happy that other translations come, and some of you just, just hate it. You're like, nothing holds the weight of the King James. So you, 60 years ago, would not be reading the original Greek or Hebrew. You're reading the King James, the English translation. Majority of people at this time are reading the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Hebrew Scriptures. Now, this is where it's important. In Hebrew, God's holy covenantal relational name is Yahweh, represented by four Hebrew letters, yod Hevahe. Yahweh is the holy divine name of God in the Hebrew Scriptures. Uh, later on, about this time and, and further, Jews wouldn't even pronounce that name because it's God's holy name. So how could unholy lips like ours ever pronounce the holy name of God? But in the text of the Old Testament Hebrew, when God's name is used, it would have been Yahweh. The Septuagint, whenever it translates the word Yahweh, it translates it as kurios. So when all these people, including the early church, when they were reading the Old Testament, they weren't seeing Yahweh, in their Greek translation, the name of God, Yahweh, was listed as kurios. So when Peter gives his message, and at the end he stands up and says, this Jesus, God the Father, has made both Lord and Christ, it is in two words describing Jesus in the highest of all possible terms and categories. He is Mashiach, he is the Messiah whom the Old Testament points to, and he is Kurios of Kurios, he is the King of Kings, he is the Lord of Lords. This is God among us. This is the person of the Son. Okay. Now, after this, the sermon climaxes with Jesus. 
Peter says this. This Jesus whom you crucified. This Jesus whom you crucified. Now, at first you may be thinking, oh yeah, Peter's telling all those people, man in Jerusalem, they killed Jesus. Tell them what's up. You know, they were there. They yelled crucify him. They yelled crucify him before Pontius Pilate. And even if they didn't yell crucify him, they stood by. They didn't try to help Jesus. They just let an innocent man be crucified. So yeah, those people are responsible. Those are the people who killed Jesus. But here's the thing. People from all across the Roman Empire have just gathered for Pentecost. There are people there that it took two or three months to get there. There are people who, it's not like you just take a plane to Jerusalem if you're far away. There's people who don't even speak the language. They don't speak Hebrew. They weren't there for any of this. But but Peter still stands up and says, this Jesus whom you crucified. And so again, if you're like me, man, you're going, bro, I wasn't even there, man. I just got here. I know there were some people who were responsible. Uh, Get them. Go tell them, man. Don't do any of that secret sensitivity stuff on them. You go tell them how they killed Jesus. I just got here. In fact, I just barely heard about Jesus. Seemed like a good dude. It got crazy. The Romans, they go a little too far sometimes. I'm sorry. But yet Peter's insistent, you killed Jesus. You were here. You killed him. And see, this is where we get back to the whole tie-in is this idea of a stumbling stone. It is a scandalon. It is an offense. Because the Bible, again and again, has a narrative. And the way the story works is that all of humanity was collectively there that day. You did yell, crucify him. You did drive the nails. You crucified him. You can't say you weren't there. These people have that excuse. But Peter's insistent. Why? Because it was the definite plan within the foreknowledge of God for all eternity that Christ would be delivered up for what reason? For salvation and forgiveness of sinners. Not just the sinners that were there that day, but for everybody. So why does Christ hang on the cross? For your sins. You're responsible. Men, again... I don't want to hear that. I don't want to hear that. That's offensive. Especially to a culture who's told since, since the day we were born, especially if you're younger, you've heard this again and again. You're, you're so special and unique. You're perfect. Don't ever change anything about you. Anyone who wants you to change anything about you, man, will just get them out of your life. You plug your ears. You're perfect in every possible way. And the Bible's telling you, you crucified Jesus. It's on your hands as well. Man, we're good at blame shifting. One of the earliest social skills we ever learn is how to blame shift, right? You got kids, you see this? There's a five-year-old and a three-year-old at a table. Someone spills the milk. Mom walks in the room. Who spilled the milk? Five-year-old points to the three-year-old. Three-year-old can't even compose a sentence with correct grammar. Dad did it. (laughs) It's blame shifting. And then what happens is we grow older, and we don't grow out of that. We actually master the skill. And so you grow up, and even like in junior high and high school, you remember there's like cliques. You start identifying with people who look, dress, and talk like you, and this is your group, and that group over there is weird. 
Those are the weird kids. Those are the cowboys. Those are the jocks. There's the choir kids. And then your group talks about how they're weird and wrong. And you master it. And this is crazy, and the research is crystal clear on this. On the neural and chemical level, when you are confronted with the truth that you don't want to hear, your brain immediately begins to create an alternative story to justify your actions. I mean, serious. Before you can even rationally process what you're being accused of, your brain is already working to create a different story to justify your actions. Blame shit. It's not my fault. There's, there's a different reason. And then what happens? Adults, you know, children grow to teenagers, teenagers grow to adults, and adults, we build cultures and kingdoms and empires and nations, and we form groups, and we say, they're what's wrong with the world. They're what's wrong with the world. And then a nation says, this is what's wrong with the world. This is what's wrong with the world. And certainly different people and nations and cultures bear more responsibility at times for what's wrong in the world. But the radical claim of Christianity is that what's wrong with the world, this evil thing, this sin thing, runs through every last human being's veins. It's in us all. There's no escaping it. You can't say, no, that's not me. That's him. That's them. How does the story begin? Adam, where are you? Did you eat the fruit? No, the woman that you gave me. Eve? Oh, the reptile. That thing. You see this, but, but the story of Christianity, you crucified Jesus. You did. You were there that day. You were not there that day, but you were there that day. And this is why the cross is a scandalon. It's a stumbling stone. All who come must, must stumble and fall. You don't hear that message and go, oh, great, that's awesome. It's so good to hear. Scandal on. And sometimes because, you know, you've, if you've grown up in church or even just living in, in America as a part of Western civilization 2,000 years after the death and crucifixion of Jesus, the idea of God or a Messiah or even a hero to a story dying on a cross, it's been so baptized that, that we're unaware of like the sheer foolishness of the claim that God or the hero of our story, the victor, the Messiah, gets crucified. You gotta understand that, that the hero or the Messiah who is crucified is by definition not the Messiah or the hero of the story. We've just gotten used to the story so much that we don't see it through those lens. In the first century Jewish world, there was well, about 100 years before Jesus and 100 years after, there was several sort of would-be Messiah figures that would start to get a following. Would start to get a following, people would follow them and they go, this guy's the Messiah. And sometimes they get thousands of followers. And then what would happen is Rome would come in and they'd kill him. Or some of them were actually crucified or tortured or killed. But the second a Messiah figure was killed or particularly crucified because a cross in Jewish thought is a cursed death. The second a Messiah figure dies the cursed death on the cross, he is by definition not the Messiah. So I don't care how many followers the Messiah had, the next day after the crucifixion of the Messiah, if you managed to get out alive and not join him in his fate, what'd you do? You went back to living your life 
like you always did. Got to get on with it. You had hope for a moment. You had hope that maybe this was the Messiah. But hope dies at the cross. Hope dies at the cross. Go back with your life. Go back to working. By the way, when Jesus is crucified, what do his followers do? They go on with their lives. The fishermen go back to fishing. You can imagine the heartache of the poor or the needy who didn't have vocations to go back to. Or what about the prostitutes who had believed that they were worthy of being loved for the first time in their life? What do they go back to? The cross is a scandal. No one wants to believe in a crucified Messiah. Look in world religions. Take Islam, for instance. The Quran teaches that Allah would not the Quran teaches that Allah did not allow Jesus to suffer on the cross. Someone else took his place. Why? Because Allah would not allow a righteous prophet to suffer the death of a cross. Jesus was a righteous prophet, so Allah spares him. But think about this. In Islam, Allah would not allow a prophet to suffer on a cross. In Christianity, God himself suffers on the cross. That's a radical claim. In the Roman world, the crucifixion was so horrific and so barbaric, people, people wouldn't even want to talk about it. Only a Roman citizen couldn't be crucified. It was reserved for the worst of the worst. And eventually, in Latin, the word cruce is kind of seen as taboo to talk about. So if you're at a party or you're having a good time, it's a celebration. You don't say cruce. You don't say the Latin word for cross because it was so horrific that it would trigger up all the memories, if you've ever seen a crucifixion, that the night would be over. So you don't even talk about it. Crucifixion is like the worst the Roman Empire could come up with. I mean, I could tell you some of the movies that depict Jesus are are horrific. Like, you can't even get through them. None of them would compare to what a, a real crucifixion would look like. Jesus was nailed immovable to the wooden cross. He would die in his blood, sweat, tears, and feces naked. You lose control of your bowels, you are stripped naked, and you are left there to suffer and die in agony. No one wants to worship that God. So God, you don't, you don't even want to use the word cross. It's a scandal. It's a stumbling stone. This is an image. It's kind of hard to see. I've shown it once before, a while ago, a few years ago, I think. Uh, it's really hard to see, so here's a kind of cleaned up version of it. What you are looking at may be the first depiction of the crucifixion of Jesus that we have. It's Roman graffiti. It's on a wall, sketched into a wall. Dated, depending upon the scholarship, in the first century, early second century, but it might be the first depiction of the historical scene of the crucifixion of Jesus. Now, in it, you can see that there's some writing. It says, Alexamena sebete theon, Alexander worships his God. Alexander worships his God. So there's a man there worshiping a crucified Jesus. So you're thinking, well, what's going on here? This isn't Christian graffiti. This is Roman graffiti mocking Christianity. Might be the first picture of Jesus we have on the cross. Everything kind of looks in place. A man being worshiped, he's crucified, except the head of Jesus is what? It's an animal. 
It's like a horse, or what is it? It's a donkey. And this might offend your Christian sensibilities, but the point still stands. The first depiction, maybe the first depiction that we have of the crucified Jesus is Romans mocking Christians saying, look at the jackass of a savior you worship. Because it is absolute foolishness to believe in a crucified Messiah. It's foolishness to believe that God would be crucified. And the early Christians didn't necessarily disagree with that, right? Kind of sounds offensive, but what does the Bible claim? The message of the cross is what? Foolishness to those who are perishing, but to those who believe it is the power of God unto salvation. No one wants the crucified Jesus. That's an offense, a stumbling stone, especially when the message begins with how do you get on that cross because of your sins. And when you look at that, you get it, right? Like, you know that part in the Gospels where someone's mocking Jesus saying, if, if you truly were the Son of God, you would come down from that cross. Now me, and I know there's some of you who are just like this. For me, I, at that point in the story, I'm going, yes, you are the Son of God, so come down from that cross. I want to see Jesus in his might and power, like rip out those nails from the cross, like instantly heal himself, like full on. I mean, think about this. Think about Marvel movies. What happens? Thor's defeated. His eyes, he's going he's gonna to die by, by whoever. Then what happens? He gets power. He doesn't die. I want to see Jesus rip out those nails, show his true glory, and then there's like lightning in his hands, and he's killing all the bad guys, whoever, the Roman soldier who nailed him, the thief who mocked him, just lightning killing everybody. But here's the truth. If he comes down from that cross and kills the people responsible for putting him on that cross, he's coming for you. He's coming to kill you and me, all of us. It didn't matter if you were there Tuesday journey to get to Pentecost. You killed Jesus. So what does Jesus do? He doesn't come down from the cross. He stays faithful to the definite plan of God that was in eternal foreknowledge. He's obedient to it to the very end, and he suffers on that cross till he utters his last words to Telestai, it is finished. It's a scandal, man. No one wants that message. No one wants that message. No one wants that God. It's very difficult to say those things in our culture. Very difficult. And the younger you are, the more difficult it is to hear it because, again, you've been brought up hearing how perfect you are in every possible way. There's nothing wrong with you. If you ever do anything wrong, it's because someone just doesn't understand you. It's like, no. And here's the reason why, part of the reason why our culture is so sick, like in, and I mean sick like in a number of ways, is you could be told how perfect you are and how amazing you are and how special you are, but you still go to bed every night. And every night you put your head on that pillow and you know the guilt, you know the shame, you know you're a train wreck, you know you've messed up, you know you've wronged. And so you could try to fluff it up like I'm so good and precious and perfect. This is just who I am. I'm just expressing myself deep down. The guilt and shame is still nagging you and you're still running from God. It's still there. You can't escape it. So like our culture doesn't have a way to deal with that. Have you noticed that? Our culture doesn't have a way to deal 
with guilt or shame. Our culture doesn't have no theory of atonement. It don't matter if you did something wrong that was like 40 years ago. If you're on the other side of any political spectrum or social spectrum, you're, the other side's going to find something you did wrong and crucify. There's no redemption. Doesn't exist. We have no way in our culture to deal with guilt or shame. So what do we do? We pretend it doesn't exist and we go crazy. Now here's where the freedom of the gospel of Jesus Christ comes in. And the ushers can begin passing out communion. Christianity doesn't want you to pretend that it doesn't exist. It actually wants you to feel the weight of your sin. Feel the full weight. You want to know how bad you are? You killed Jesus. But this same Jesus whom you crucified also planned this for all eternity. Why? Because in one sense, this is the least seeker-sensitive message you can ever come up with. But in another sense, it is the most seeker-sensitive. Because although your sins handed over Christ to be crucified, Jesus sees you, sees your sin, and pursued you. Who is the seeker? There's only the one seeker. And from heaven he sought you. It was the definite plan and foreknowledge of God before time began that he would know your name and pursue you. How far would he pursue you? To the cross. So for seekers, it's a stumbling block that you don't want to trip over. But the gospel is also good news because that's where you're told that God loves you just as you are, but he loves you enough not to leave you where you are. And do you know how freeing that is? You know how heavy it is to try to pretend like you have your act together all of the time? You know how hard it is to, to be perfect? You're perfect in every possible way. Do you know what it's like to try to carry perfection? You know how freeing it is when Jesus says, man, I see, all, I see everything that's there. I know it all. Take off the load, man. Take off the load, girl. My yoke is easy and my burden is light. Take it off. Yeah, I want you to acknowledge your sin, but you need to know that I love you as you are and I came from heaven not to leave you as you are. And so you have the freedom to go, oh yeah, I am a train wreck. I'm not perfect. I got issues. In order to really, really understand the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ, you kind of have to first walk through some bad news, right? The stumbling stone, the offense. How did the people respond that day? Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Key word up top, they were cut to the heart. It's like, unless the gospel cuts you to the heart first, you don't really understand it. It's got to cut. No, do, you, do you feel the weight of like, I was there that day. My sins contributed to this. You cut you to the heart, but then after the cutting of the heart, it's like the surgery. Here's the new heart. And you're no longer not my people. You are a son or a daughter. You are adopted into the family. And bringing us full circle to how Peter was encouraging Christians who are rejected by men but accepted by God. You 
are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but you now are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you know mercy. You know the mercy of a loving father. From heaven he sought you. He seeks you. He knows your name. He knows every hair on your head. And the Bible from Genesis to Revelation is a story playing again and again. Humanity rebels and runs. Adam, where are you? It's God pursuing. It's God seeking. Oftentimes we think this message is just for people who may not know Jesus. This is the message every Christian needs to tell themselves every day. You wake up and you remind yourself of the gospel. God loves me as I am, but today he wants to take me one step further. God loves me as I am, but he wants to grow me in holiness today. Day by day, step by step. You're more flawed than you can ever imagine, but more loved than you could ever fathom. It's a pastor by the name of Tim Keller who says that again and again and again to his people. Because you have to tell yourself that every day. And in that, you can walk with confidence knowing that if I make a mistake, my God has a path to restore and to redeem. Please stand as we take communion. In a moment, we're going to close with a song that talks about our identity. And our identity in Christ didn't just happen magically. We were bought. There was a price. There was a body broken and blood shed. Yes, we are sinners, but our new identity in Christ is child of God, forgiven, loved and accepted, not forsaken. On the night Jesus was betrayed, he said, remember. And every week we remember. We come to church. This is the most important thing we do on Sunday. It's not the sermon. It's not the music, although all of that contributes to that. The most important thing is always you remember your king and what he did. This is my body broken for you. And likewise, he took the cup. So when you drink this, you don't just remember, you also commit and pledge your allegiance to proclaim my death and resurrection until I return. So Jesus, we promise to proclaim your death and your resurrection until you take us home.